Welcome to The Intern at Work, a podcast made for internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. I'm Zara Morali and today we have a special Ask a Fellow episode for you guys. Joining me here today is Dr. Emily Baxter, a resident colleague um, with a special interest in medical oncology, as well as Dr. Aurora. So I'll get you to introduce yourself. Thanks, Sara. So my name is Ruchi Aurora. I am currently a PGY6 fellow at the Juravinsky Cancer Center in breast cancer and melanoma. And I'm also doing a master's of health sciences education through McMaster. I did my um, medical school at the University of Alberta. I did internal medicine here at McMaster and I recently completed my medical oncology subspecialization here at McMaster as well. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. Okay, so Emily is going to start us off with a case. Okay, so our patient uh, today is a 45-year-old woman who comes to the emergency department with shortness of breath. She's hemodynamically stable and she's on room air. Her initial workup shows a normocytic anemia with a hemoglobin of 100. She has normal sodium, potassium, creatinine, and troponin, but her calcium is found to be 3.2. She has a CTPA done uh, by the emergency physician that confirms the presence of a PE, and she started on therapeutic uh, low molecular weight heparin. However, the CTPA also comments on innumerable lytic lesions throughout her ribs and her spine, as visualized also on the CT scan, and so she's referred to internal medicine for further workup. Her past medical history includes breast cancer that was diagnosed seven years ago, and she was treated with surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation at that time. She also took anti-hormonal pill uh, for five years after completing those treatments. Okay, so Ruchi, the fact that we know that this patient has lytic lesions, can that help us in any way for the diagnosis? Definitely. So I think let's take a step back and just talk about lytic lesions in general. So lytic lesions are bone lesions that are usually caused by metastatic cancer to the bones, and usually they can look like lucencies or holes uh, on imaging. They're typically caused by the cancer invading the bone and disrupting osteoblast function, and there's definitely uh, a differential diagnosis for lytic lesions. And is lytic lesion the same thing as sclerotic lesion? Great question, and no, quite the opposite, actually. So sclerotic lesions are also often called blastic bony lesions. These are areas of bone that's actually healing, and they're caused by increased osteoblastic activity. Some cancers classically cause bone lesions to be lytic, some classically cause them to be sclerotic, and some cancers cause both. Can you tell us a bit about the differential for both lytic and blastic lesions? So when it comes to lytic bony lesions, typically we're talking about metastatic cancer such as breast cancer, although those bony lesions can be mixed. Um, Classically also renal cell cancer, melanoma, multiple myeloma, thyroid cancer, and less common non-small cell lung cancer and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And just an important note, lytic bony lesions often don't appear on a bone scan because bone scans detect osteoblastic activity, which is the healing phase. So that's why when working up a patient with multiple myeloma, you would get a skeletal survey, which is a series of x-rays rather than a bone scan. In terms of the differential diagnosis for blastic or sclerotic lesions, typically this would include prostate cancer, carcinoid, small cell lung cancer, and Hodgkin's lymphoma. Okay, so just to summarize, patients with breast cancer would present with lytic lesions, is that right? Lytic lesions and sometimes mixed sclerotic and 
lesions as well. Okay, and then lytic lesions show up, I guess, on a CT scan, but not necessarily a bone scan. Exactly, or on an x-ray, they will show up. Okay, Um, and so this patient had a known diagnosis of breast cancer previously, and now comes in uh, with these lytic lesions. Uh, Is it common for breast cancer to metastasize to the bone? Absolutely. In fact, the bones are the most common location where breast cancer tends to metastasize. Other common places, however, include the liver, the lungs, and this can present as a pleural effusion, pulmonary nodules, or something called lymphangitic carcinomatosis, which can look just like heart failure on a chest x-ray with increased interstitial markings. And breast cancer, unfortunately, can also metastasize to the brain. There's also a specific kind of breast cancer that's less common. Uh, Pathologically, it's called lobular carcinoma. And this one behaves a little bit differently and can actually metastasize intra-abdominally, such as to the peritoneum or even to the ovaries. If I were seeing this patient overnight as a consult, are there any other uh, oncology-related emergencies I'd need to rule out in, in someone presenting like this? Great question. So um, I think for a patient like this coming in with likely metastatic breast cancer, a few things to think about would be um, hypercalcemia of malignancy, uh, some sort of cord compression, SVC syndrome, and brain meds. So we can briefly talk about each one of those. Uh, In terms of hypercalcemia of malignancy, usually those patients present with your classic moans, groans, bones, and psychic overtones. So they'll present with confusion, dehydration, and constipation. Those people need IV fluids, and uh, you may or may not need to give an IV bisphosphonate as well, ensuring that their renal function is normal first. If it's a spinal cord compression above the cauda equina, this can present with upper motor neuron signs, such as upwing toes, hyperreflexia, or uh, increased tone. If the lesion is at the cauda equina um, or below, you can find lower motor neuron signs such as downgoing toes or hyporeflexia. Um, And otherwise, spinal lesions can cause saddle anesthesia and bowel or bladder dysfunction. Those patients need steroids and an immediate radiation oncology and neurosurgery consult. SVC syndrome is less commonly seen in breast cancer, but certainly can still happen if there's a lot of mediastinal lymphadenopathy. On physical exam, you would look for facial plethora um, and as well as Pemberton sign. Um, patients may also present with a history of dyspnea. These patients need steroids again, as well as a radiation oncology consult. And finally, in terms of brain metastases, these patients present with symptoms and signs depending on the location of the brain meds. Typically, you're looking for focal neurological deficits on physical exam, but there may also be a history of seizures or personality changes. Once again, they need steroids, as well as neurosurgery and radiation oncology consults. Okay, so lots to think about in a patient coming in overnight with breast cancer or a recurrence of their breast cancer. Um, For our patient specifically, uh, she comes in, we have this new diagnosis of a PE and hypercalcemia. So how would you approach uh, the management of this patient? So for someone like this, we're not going to jump straight to the management of her breast cancer overnight because she has quite a few other things going on that are related. So first, we are going to treat her PE, and we all know that that is with anticoagulation. Um, Low molecular weight heparin would be a good option for this patient, um, presuming her renal function is normal. 
Um, we need to treat her hypercalcemia as well with IV fluids, um, as well as a bisphosphonate. So typically we would use pimidronate 60 or 90 milligrams, um, a one-time dose, or zoledronic acid four milligrams, again, a one-time dose. Um, please be cautious, both of these bisphosphonates need to be used extremely cautiously in the setting of renal impairment and you don't want to overdo it because they can cause profound hypocalcemia in the subsequent days. It's also really important to be patient. Bisphosphonates don't work overnight, they usually take 48 to 72 hours to lower the calcium. So in the meantime, it's fluids, fluids, fluids. And then finally, uh, this patient will likely benefit from some pain control. Bone metastases can be really painful. So at the very minimum, I would give someone Tylenol and you may even want to consider some low dose morphine or Dilaudid, for example. So now let's fast forward, I guess, and it's the next morning. The patient's done well overnight with those treatments that we just talked about. Um, what would we do for further workup to, to help establish her diagnosis at this point and, and continue treatment going forward? Great question. So I would say that we want to start with a full physical examination, um, then moving on with um, some investigations and eventually, uh, ideally, we'd like a biopsy. So in terms of physical exam, this patient should get a bilateral breast and axillary lymph node exam because this could be a local recurrence of her previous breast cancer or this could be a new primary breast cancer that has metastasized to her bones. Uh, she needs a neurological exam to ensure there's no features to suspect brain mets or cord compression. She needs a respiratory exam as she could have a pleural effusion from lung mets, for example, and a cardiac exam. This patient has likely had previous chemotherapy um, with the use of an anthracycline, which can cause cardiomyopathy and eventually heart failure. Um, after the physical exam, she should get some further staging investigations um, to look for another possible primary cancer, as well as to stage the disease. So this would likely be in the form of a CT, chest, abdomen, and pelvis, as well as with a bone scan to get a sense of uh, the extent of bony metastases. If this patient had neurological symptoms, you could consider imaging her brain, uh, but typically we only do that if they're symptomatic. And then um, certainly we would get a bilateral mammogram, again, to look for a new primary um, breast malignancy. And um, as I'm sure you all understand, uh, medical oncologists love and need our biopsies. So um, if at all possible, uh, please try to biopsy uh, whatever uh, tissue may be available. Hmm. So I, I would have thought that because this patient had breast cancer previously, and I'm assuming they had a biopsy previously, I would have thought that with a recurrence of breast cancer, maybe a biopsy isn't as important. Would you, would you agree or not so much? Uh, that's a really great question, actually, and we get that a lot. So um, definitely when it comes to establishing the initial diagnosis, it's extremely important to have a biopsy. Um, here, the patient has a known history of breast cancer previously, so the likelihood that her presentation now is consistent with the previous breast cancer is pretty high. However, if a biopsy can be done, it's often still preferred because it helps to re-establish the molecular biomarkers which we use to guide our treatment, and these are the estrogen receptor or ER, progesterone receptor PR, and the HER2 new receptor. Even though you could go back on the pathology from her breast cancer seven years ago, 
often we do re-biopsy because in about 5 to 10% of cases, there can actually be a discrepancy in the molecular markers in the recurrent breast cancer. And this has important treatment implications. That's really interesting. Um, obviously, the world of breast cancer treatment and just oncology treatment in general has been rapidly accelerating recently. And uh, we're just hoping you could take us through a, a preliminary sort of approach to understanding how we can treat breast cancer, especially in the metastatic stage like our patient here. Definitely. So I would say the first thing is to treat any acute emergencies. Uh, <laughs> so that may include treating brain metastases or treating a cord compression. Uh, next, I would focus on uh, immediate symptomatic management, so um, pain control with uh, analgesics, and you may even consider steroids if someone has very symptomatic visceral metastases. Um, so for example, lymphangenic carcinomatosis, which can cause significant shortness of breath, or painful liver metastases um, from uh, liver metastases causing stretching of the capsule. Um, and this would be the time to make your referrals to radiation oncology if there's one very painful bone metastasis or if there's an impending fracture. Uh, then we get to treating the underlying breast cancer itself. So this is definitely complicated and has become very nuanced over the last few years. Um, but broadly speaking, it's important for us to know the receptor status as well as the location of the metastases and what symptoms are being caused by the metastases, if any. If uh, the breast cancer is hormone receptor positive, we usually use anti-hormonal therapy. And there are some newer therapies now uh, that we combine with anti-hormonal therapy called cell cycle inhibitors. If it's hormone receptor negative, typically we use some form of chemotherapy. And if it's HER2 positive, we use chemotherapy as well as Herceptin. And Herceptin, for those of you who don't know, is also called Trastuzumab. It's a monoclonal antibody which is targeted against the HER2 receptor. Finally, any patient who has bone metastases, we also give uh, bisphosphonates um, as that tends to treat breast cancer in the bones and it prevents skeletal related events such as fractures, um, need for uh, radiation and uh, pain. Is there ever a situation in a hormone receptor positive patient where you'd go straight to chemotherapy like in those other patients that you mentioned? So in today's day and age, with how rapidly our repertoire of treatment options is expanding, we have some great options now that work quickly. So we don't typically have to uh, jump straight to chemotherapy if someone has hormone receptor positive breast cancer. However, I will say that if somebody has um, very symptomatic metastatic breast cancer, chemotherapy typically works quickly and reliably, so that would be our first option um, in that scenario. And then, so you said that someone with HER2 positive breast cancer would be treated with both Herceptin and chemotherapy. Is there a reason why the chemotherapy has to be there as well with the Herceptin? Oh, that's a great question. So. Essentially, the way all the clinical trials uh, were done were with a combination of chemotherapy with um, trastuzumab. And in fact, um, more recently, there's another anti-HER2 agent that we use uh, in that combination. Herceptin um, doesn't typically have much activity when given in isolation. It seems to really have to be given with chemotherapy, and there's a lot of theories behind uh, why that may be, um, but I'll spare you some of those more technical details today. Uh, 
Um, so the patient that we have uh, in front of us, they came in overnight and then they were diagnosed with a recurrence of their breast cancer. Um, just thinking about this story, I know that one of the questions that this patient would have for me is, you know, what does this mean for me? And I'm sure you guys as medical oncologists uh, get this question quite a bit. So can you tell us a little bit about what, what we would say to this patient? Can we predict her prognosis? This is always a tough one. And I would say that in general, and the evidence would support this, physicians are really not very good at predicting prognosis accurately. In fact, if you look at the literature, family members tend to be more accurate in terms of predicting the prognosis of a loved one because they just spend more time with them. So I would say that for all patients with metastatic breast cancer, given the advances in treatment today, the median overall survival is somewhere in the range of two and a half years. This means that half the patients may live longer than that and half may live shorter than that. However, you can imagine this number is highly affected by many different variables. Patients may have very limited metastatic disease and particular bone-only metastases, and those patients have a median overall survival that can be quite a bit longer than two and a half years, especially if they can tolerate lots of lines of therapy. On the other hand, those patients who may have a high burden of disease or in particular visceral disease, such as a lot of liver mats or lung metastases or even brain metastases, uh, they tend to have a, a worse prognosis. Um, functional status or ECOG, I'm sure you've heard of, that tends to be a big uh, consideration as well. Um, patients who have a higher, sorry, a more poor functional status um, due to the breast cancer often can't tolerate treatment uh, and in general they have a worse prognosis below that two and a half year mark as well. But again, these are all just rough guides and it, a lot of it depends on um, some factors which are out of our control, such as if the breast cancer itself is just sensitive to the treatment or not. So I think it's important for healthcare professionals um, uh, and uh, internists who are often looking after uh, breast cancer patients to remember that there are many treatment options available for metastatic breast cancer. So it's always a good idea to consult your friendly local medical oncologist for some advice. That's really interesting that a patient's family member might actually be able to predict their prognosis better than physicians. I think that's actually quite humbling. Um, and maybe we can include uh, a link to that study in our website. Yeah, definitely. Um, so with everything that we've talked about, uh, I think that was an excellent summary of breast cancer. Can you take it home with uh, five points that you'd like us all to remember? So point number one, breast cancer tends to metastasize to bones, then liver, lungs, and brain. Uh, the second, for any patient presenting with breast can metastatic breast cancer, rule out spinal cord compression, cauda equina syndrome, and brain metastases before anything else. Thirdly, the workup for a patient with breast cancer includes a full history and physical examination, including a breast and lymph node exam, bilateral mammogram, staging investigations, including a CT of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis, as well as a bone scan, and biopsy, biopsy, biopsy. Those biomarkers are so important for guiding treatment. Fourth, treatment of breast cancer involves treating any acute emergencies, treating underlying symptoms, and then treating the underlying breast cancer itself. And treating the breast cancer depends on the stage, hormone receptors, and the HER2 status. 
And finally, the prognosis for metastatic breast cancer is a median of two and a half years. Excellent. Okay, so thanks, Emily and Rucci, for joining us for this uh, very relevant topic that I think lots of internal medicine residents might not actually know much about. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks so much, Zara. No problem. So this episode will be released in the new year, so I hope you guys both have a great new year. Happy 2020. Thanks. Happy holidays, everyone. Thank you for listening to today's episode on breast cancer. This episode was written and recorded with Dr. Ruchi Aurora, Breast Cancer and Melanoma Fellow. The Internetwork series was created by Alison Lai, developed by Zara Morali and Leah Karanopoulos, and overseen by Dr. Daniel Brent Vegas. This podcast was produced and recorded with Zara Morali. Music production by Laxman Savantha Mohan. If you like this podcast, please like and subscribe at wherever you get your podcasts. The Internetwork series uh, releases podcasts every two weeks on Sundays, and we will be uh, ongoing for all of 2020, so please like and subscribe our page. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon.